Um, <laughs> but also about love. And there was a husband and wife, and they were married for 60 years, and they had no secrets between them except for one. And the woman kept in her closet a shoebox, and she forbade her husband from ever opening it. But at her deathbed, and with her blessing, he opened the box and found a crocheted doll. That's the dolly bit. And 50,000 pounds in cash. Ooh. And the woman explained, my mother told me that the secret to a happy marriage was to never argue. Instead, I should keep quiet and crochet a doll. Her husband was touched. Only one doll in the box. That meant she'd be angry with him only once in 60 years. But what about the money, he said. Oh, she said, that's the money I've raised from selling dolls. <laughs> so. There we go. I thought that was good. Wow. And, and love's a wonderful thing. And um, I don't know if you remember a time when you've fallen in love with somebody. And that moment you sit there and just staring into each other's eyes. Uh, John. John. Okay. And the thing is, we, we can't do that all our life. <laughs> um, there comes a point we have to actually get on. But um, I reflect on my own relationship with Louisa. And there's times that I can look at her and I see, it's good she's not in the room, I can say this. Um, <laughs> but I can look at her and just be in love and know beauty. And there are certain times, and, and for me sometimes, like, it's interesting, Louisa works in the CAF, and I come in, uh, when she's working, I sit there and work as well, and I like watching her work. Not because it's a rare thing or anything like that, but there's something beautiful about seeing somebody serve. There's something beautiful, I find, about my wife when I see her worship. I think there's, there's nothing more beautiful. Um, and sometimes it's really hard in the hustle and bustle of life that we, we forget to look. You know, in your, in your relationships, maybe, you know, you can look back on the days when you say, yes, we looked longingly into each other's eyes. But things get busy. Thing, life takes over and you forget to look. And sometimes it's hard to take that moment and just to gaze and to look. And I was thinking about, there's a story in the book of Numbers in chapter 21. And it says because of the uh, Israelites' disobedience basically to God, that God sent um, a, some snakes into their midst and bit them. And these were deadly bites. Thankfully, I've never encountered a snake and had a deadly bite. But these bites were the bite that would kill you. But what God gave Moses to do, God told Moses to create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And it you were bitten by the snake, and then you went and looked at the bronze serpent, you would live. You'd think that would be simple, wouldn't it? And this is a picture of us today, of Christ. That it's really simple. If you look at me, him, you'll live. 
And I want to just take some time this morning for us to look at Jesus. Because in the hustle and bustle of life, in all the things that are going on, we can lose that moment where we just look at him. And maybe you can remember the days, back in the early days, when you loved him and you thought, you know, everything was wonderful, every moment with Jesus was wonderful. And through the things that happen in life, we just lose that moment. And the reality is, if we don't take time to stop, if we don't take time to look at him, then we're going to, things will change in our lives and we'll lose some of that love. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we're just going to look at him and live. Because actually looking at him brings life. So I'm going to read, go work through quite a famous chapter in the Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And this is a, a chapter that was a prophetic word written about the Messiah. And a prophecy means that it, it was something spoken before telling what was going to come in the future. And this word was actually spoken 700 years before Jesus came. And there's one thing I just thought, you know what, God's got a plan. Because he can say something 700 years before it happens, and then it happens just as he said. And God's got a plan, and I hope that gives you some confidence this morning that God knows you, and he's got a plan. And so I'm just going to walk us through this, this book, this, sorry, this chapter, and I really hope that God will be revealed to you. So we will get the uh, verses if this works. No. Here we go. No. Okay, slide one. Dave can click for me. Slide one, sorry, verse one. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, a couple of weeks ago when I spoke, I talked about the revelation. What revelation are you walking in? What has been revealed to you? What do you believe? Because we walk in our revelation. And what you know, what you see, informs how you act, how you live. And what we must do, what we should aim for, is to seek to walk in the revelation of Jesus every day. Because, you know what, you'll come across things every day, and if, depending upon the thing that you're walking in, will inform how you respond and how you react to that thing. So that when something comes across your path, when something happens, how do you respond? It's funny, I was talking to Seamus, I hope you don't mind me saying this. Where is he? Woo. We were talking about his trip, and we were talking about his flat. And when you have a revelation of Jesus, that Jesus is in control, it means you don't have to worry about that, does it? And so when you get these things come in your mind, it's like, well, what's, what's the revelation of Jesus saying about this situation, this circumstance? And so we want to aim to walk in the revelation of Jesus every day. Because actually Jesus quoted from this verse, it's in John 12, 38, and he said, because of unbelief. And so there were people who could see many things. There were people who saw him, but they didn't see him. They were walking with him, but they didn't see him. 
They didn't know him. And so the reality of Jesus right there in front of them had no impact upon their hearts. It talks about the arm of the Lord, and that's his power, his might, his strength. That revelation of who he was had no impact on them. And I don't want that to be the case for us today. Because the role of, or one of the, the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring the revelation of who Jesus is to our hearts. And that's the reality that we can, people were standing there right in front of Jesus but didn't get that revelation. And we, I want to pray for us right now that Jesus, sorry, the Holy Spirit will come and bring that revelation in our hearts. So we pray, Lord, I just ask, Holy Spirit, will you come? That as we look at your word, we need you, Lord God. We need your revelation because we can just read words and miss this completely. We can read the scriptures and miss you completely. May you give us open hearts this morning. May we just set our eyes upon you to look, set ourselves to look upon you that we might have a fresh revelation of you today. Amen. So then it goes on in verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Do you know that the life of Jesus is an example to us. And it was interesting, as I was trying to prepare this, what I wanted to do was to reveal Jesus to you. But the interesting thing, that as you reveal Jesus, you learn so much about yourself. <laughs> I won't embarrass you over that. As we look at Jesus, we get to know about ourselves. We get to know about what the re- who we should be and the reality that we should live in. Because he defines us. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ defines you. The way he thinks, the way he lives defines you and how you should think, how you should live. And so as we look at Jesus, there is an inevitable reaction for us about who we are and what we should be. Because with Jesus, when he comes, and it talks about him coming, that he brings about a new kingdom and a new culture. Because we'll look at things about him and we'll think, oh, that's not the best or that's not right. But when Jesus comes, he's saying, I'm turning everything on its head. I'm going to tell you things that you thought were one way, but actually they're the other way. And this should then impact how we are and how we live. Because it says... You look at how he lived, and he didn't have a great upbringing. He had a disadvantaged background. He was born, in a sense, in this really dodgy situation, kind of out of wedlock, but where his mother is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, which, if you try and tell anyone that, they will think you're crazy. Um, And a father who's not his father... He was born in a stable, not in a grand palace. He was born in Bethlehem, which is a little backwater. And it's interesting, there's a part where 
when he's calling his disciples, there was one of the disciples, Nathaniel, and he says, he quotes this, it sounds like a famous like, proverb, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like, can anything good come out of Eltham? Can anything good come out of your family? And that's a kind of disadvantage that he had, that he was from the wrong place, from the wrong family, from the wrong upbringing, the wrong scenario. He had a disadvantaged background. But the eye of the Father was always upon him. And this is the thing. His Father was always with him, always leading him. And it's interesting, how do we define success? Because you might be saying, you know what, my life would be better if. My life would be better if I had a better family. My life would be better if I had a better upbringing, a better education, if I could get a better job, if I lived in a better place. You know, if I lived in this country or that country or that town or this place, things would be better, things would be different. But the reality was, Jesus had everything stacked against him. But the eye of the Father was always upon him. And the reality is, no matter what your situation the eye of the Father is upon you. He says he was no, not much to look at, really. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't much to look at. He was the guy you walk past in the street and don't give any second look to because he wasn't much. Now, if you go on to my next slide, there's, we get this picture of Jesus. And this is what I call pin-up Jesus. This is from the film The Son of God, and Jesus, you know, even, you know, I'm like, oh, he's a good looking guy. <laughs> this isn't the real Jesus. Because if, if Jesus went around saying, come follow me, you get a load of people, oh, well, yeah, I'll follow you. <laughs> but when Jesus said, come follow me, he was like, who? The ugly guy. I wonder if he was a bit ugly. Because he wasn't much to look at. He, was, he didn't stand out in a crowd because of what he looked like on the outside. This guy walks in the room and everyone's turning their head. But to look at, Jesus didn't do that. There was something different about him. His beauty came from within. He was the person, that if you sat with him, you start to begin to see the beauty the real beauty. If you want to go to our next slide, just so you're not put off by pin-up Jesus. It's the same verse. Because we can fall in love with the idea of Jesus, the romanticism of Jesus, but not actually go deeper and find out who he truly is. And maybe your, your understanding of Jesus this morning is quite superficial. You know, you don't really know much about him or who he is. Because I don't know about you, you might be like me. When I was growing up, I had some posters on my wall. It'd be great to see which posters you had on your wall. I had Lee Sharp, who played for Manchester United, Ryan Giggs. Um, at one point, I had Madonna. <laughs> that was when she was young. Um, because you know what? There was something about these people I was attracted to, different things. Um, but the reality was I didn't know them. I had an image of them. I had a perception of them and what they gave to me. 
but I didn't know them, and I don't know what type of people they are. I don't know if they are good people, bad people, but I had them on my walls because of what they meant to me. And in a sense, we can have Jesus in the same way that we're very happy to put a poster of him up on our walls, metaphorically speaking, or maybe even literally, but never actually know him. He's just what we need him to be. The difference is, unlike the Manchester United team in the 90s, Jesus invites us to come and to see him, come and to be with him, come and to spend time with him and get to know him in a way that these other people are never going to do. But the reality, because the Apostle John, he said that when we see him, we will be like him. Now, if you, if you go back and you look at who John was, John sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable because John was the guy, it says that he would sit at Jesus' feet and he would put his head upon his chest. Now, I've never done that with another guy. It's a bit, for me, that's a bit strange. But John had a secret that he was so intimate with Jesus in a godly way that as he sat there and he gazed into Jesus' eyes, he was being transformed into his likeness. This is coming from a man who wasn't busy off doing this, that and the other. This was a, from a man who said, no, I took time to sit at his feet and look into his eyes and he transformed who I was. To get to know someone, you've got to dig a little. You know, today we're going to have lunch. Hopefully you can stay for lunch together. And you might talk to someone and you can be like, oh yeah, how are you? And a few nice pleasantries. But that doesn't mean you know them. To know them, you've got to spend a bit of time. You've got to dig a little. You've got to not, you know, you've got, you've got to ask some questions. Otherwise we can just stay very superficial in our relationships and the same can be of our relationship with Jesus. Let's go on to verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. You know, Jesus had a tough life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I, I, to be honest, I've never really thought about it as much as I did this week when I was looking at this verse. He had a tough life. As I said, he didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth when he was born. You know, everything going his way. I wonder what the other kids, how the other kids treated him when he was growing up. I wonder if the other parents said, don't play with him. His, his dad's the one who's, you know, that's not his real dad. We don't know who his real dad is, and his mum's a bit crazy. She's a bit of a religious nut. She says, oh, God gave me this son. She's a bit crazy. Don't play with that one. And also, even as a kid, I was thinking, when you're growing up, it says that Jesus without, was without sin. Now, as a kid growing up, it's pretty, pretty hard to do that. Even for an adult, to be without sin, it means you have to make choices that means that people don't really like you. 
Because when you say to a kid, oh, let's go and do this, and he goes, no, I mustn't do that. You're like, oh, good, goody choose who's Jesus. He's no fun. Maybe the other kids didn't want to play with him because he wouldn't do things that they wanted to do. It says, he was as one from whom men hide their faces. Can you just put yourself in that position? That you're the one that when you're walking down the street, people are like this and they don't want to look at you. They won't look you in the eye because of who you are. This is what it says about Jesus. They didn't want to look him in the face. How would that a bit, how can you, maybe you can imagine, maybe that was you. Maybe you've had that kind of upbringing. But the thing is, this is the path that Jesus chose. Because often when we have those kind of experiences, that's not something we would choose and we would go out, out of our way to make sure those things are not our experience. But that was the path that Jesus chose. How do you stand in that situation? How do you react in a way that that doesn't just make you crumble? And the only thing I can imagine is that his identity and his purpose was so fixed in God that when somebody said to him, yeah, you don't even know who your dad is, he said, no, I do know who my dad is. He's my father in heaven. And it wasn't said sarcastically, it wasn't said kind of, you know, disrespectfully, but he just knew who he was. It was my prayer in this that, again, we're praying for our children, that they grow up in such a way that their security, their identity is so coming from God that when they get these pressures, when they get these things come against them, that they can say, I can stand. It was funny, when I was, I became a Christian at 13 and I had quite a transformation in my life and I remember writing things on my books at school, like, I love Jesus. And I don't know if you, when you were at school, everyone had a nickname. <laughs> and particularly if you're boys, some of those nicknames are not very nice. And I had a few nicknames, I won't tell you what they were. And when I became a Christian, they changed my nickname to Jesus. And I was like, that is so much better than the previous ones. I'm like, they thought it was a put down. I thought glory to be identified with him, to know that that is my identity. He is my identity. I was like, you don't know how good that is for me. I was much happier with that name. But even when you think about Jesus when he was in the temple, when he, again, another weird situation where his parents have gone a couple of days and then realised, wait a minute, where's Jesus? I had that when John said, pray for your kids, and I was like, where's Samuel? <laughs> he was out the back. <laughs> but they went and they found him and he was in the temple and he was teaching with the other leaders. Imagine a 12-year-old sitting there confounding the wisdom of the elders and the leaders. And they said to him, what are you doing? He said, I must be in my father's house. He must, that was his purpose. His purpose was not to do the things that everyone else did, but his purpose was to do the will of his father. And he was in his father's house. He knew who his father was. Do we know who our father is? Do we know our purpose that comes from him? 
Because you know what, when you get it, it gives you such security, it gives you such strength, because people will come against you, and it's like, no, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I know where I'm going. He says, he was despised and rejected. Do you know that just because you are rejected, that does not make you a reject. Just because you are despised, it does not make you unloved or unlovable. Your identity does not come from the way people treat you. Your identity comes from the word of God spoken over you. And again, I wonder in Jesus' upbringing, what was the words that were spoken over him by his mother particularly? Did she just... Did she remind him of who he was? Did the Spirit remind him of who he was? Because God is speaking things over you, and the question is, will you believe those things, or will you believe the things that other people spoke over you? And I gave that word about being an accident. And maybe you've had that word spoken over you by your parents or by others because you don't, you weren't raised by your parents, that you were not wanted, does not define who you are. But God defines who you are because he knew you before the foundation of the world and he planned for you just as he planned Jesus and his coming. Let's go on to verse four. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Because Jesus lived this hard life, and he carried his own griefs and his own sorrows, but not only his, but he carried yours and mine as well. What love is that? And this is the call of God, to cast our burdens upon him. And he willfully does this. Sometimes you might get lumbered with somebody else's baggage. Sometimes, you know, someone else might say to you or just ch chuckle their junk upon you. But Jesus did this willfully. He said, see everything you've gone through. I've seen every hurt, every grief, and I'm going to take it upon me. I want to carry it for you because you were not designed to carry it. You were designed to be free. And he's saying, I don't want you to carry that anymore. I want to carry it. But we're sometimes like, no, Jesus, all right, I'll, I'll just carry my cross. No. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, come to me with your burdens and I will take them. Because, you know what, he's not like us. Thankfully, he's not like us. Because the way we respond to people is very tit for tat. If you're mean to me, I'll probably be mean to you. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. That's not great. You know, I see this when I'm driving. You know, I, I'm trying to pull out and somebody doesn't let me out. I'm like, oh, come on, that's not very nice. I don't know what's going on for that person in that moment. Because on another day, I'm that person who doesn't let somebody out. And it's not because I'm not nice. It's because I'm daydreaming. Or it's because I'm thinking about something else. Or I'm in a rush and I'm just focused on where I'm going. 
And how often do we want grace from others, but we don't offer it ourselves? But Jesus isn't like that. He always offers grace to us, undeserved favour. Because you can say, Jesus, you, you can't, why should you have to take all my junk upon you? You're very right. Why should he? He shouldn't, but he does. Because it's the only way for you to walk into freedom. His love is completely different. I don't know if you've ever had love held over you like a carrot on a stick. Because this is how people use love. They say, if you do this, then I'll love you. If you behave in this certain way, then I will love you. But you know, in this moment, right here, right now, God loves you completely for who you are. And if you go out and you do something terrible, if you go out and you do something wonderful, his love for you does not change. Now, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that mindset because love is so conditional. The love we offer is so conditional. I want to love my kids so well, but I know that if they are naughty, my love for them changes. At least in the moment. I know deep down it doesn't. But in that moment, it's like... <laughs> but the trouble is, we, we've experienced conditional love. And so we treat God as if he is conditional. We treat him like, oh God, I've messed up. You, you can't love me. But he's like, no, come to me. Come to me. I love you. And this is truth, verse 5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Because, you know, love doesn't leave you where you are. Because God loves you just right now how you are. But he's not like, I don't want to leave you there because you're carrying things I don't want you to carry. You're behaving in ways that are just bad for you. I don't want to leave you there, but I want to come and I want to help you deal with all this sin, the things you're doing wrong, because we've all sinned. It says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's for you, it's for me, we've all sinned. I'm not standing here as someone who's got it all together. I'm not standing here as somebody who's got a shiny halo. I don't know if you can see it, just glowing there. It's not there. I'm a saint by the grace of God. Saint means holy one. We'll get on to that in a minute. But you know, no, no sin is too great for God. Because sometimes we'll say to God things, really, to be honest, they're stupid things. We say, oh God, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, he does know what he's done. He said, God, my sin is too big. I've gone too far. There is no one who has gone too far. There is no sin that is too big. And if we come with that mindset, if we come with that attitude, we actually diminish the love of God. We actually make less the work of the cross where Jesus died for the sin of every person in the world. And I don't know why we get it in our mind that we can say, no, we died for every sin in the world apart from this one that I have done. 
it just doesn't work like that. He's saying every sin, every person, no one is excluded. You are not excluded this morning from the love of God. But he loves you so much. You know that when we come to him, he gives us peace. First of all, he gives us peace with himself, you know, that we get in that right relationship with him. That should outwork in our relationship with others. And it should work, outwork itself inwardly as well. And I was just wondering this morning if there's anyone where we struggle to have peace inside. Because we can go around with a nice smile on our face, yet there's no peace inside. And it particularly struck in my mind as I was looking at this, that people who maybe can't sleep because of turmoil that is going on in their hearts. And I just want to pray that the peace of God comes into your life. And the peace of God comes when we make him our Lord. Because when we make him our Lord, we align ourselves with him and what he's doing, his teachings, his ways, his attitudes, his character, his kingdom, his culture... And when we're in that, you have peace. I was saying, so when Seamus, when, when he goes on to Greece, he can have peace because he knows that his heavenly father will send angels to look after his house. If that's what's needed. He knows the character of his father that brings peace in our situation. It doesn't mean all our situations are rosy. But you know, the truth is you can have peace from God in the most diabolical situation. And it says that with his stripes we are healed. To be honest with you, I don't know the full extent of what that means. Because some people say, you know, everything is healed. Every sickness, every disease. Brilliant if it is. Other people go the other way and just say, well, it's just, you know, we're healed because we have a relationship with God. I think that's not enough because I know that God's healed me. Has anyone here been healed by God before physically? Yeah? God heals. It's reality. And that's because of his love for us, because of his kingdom come to live within us and be outworked through us that we can receive healing from him. It goes on, verse 6. I think I preached some of verse six just now in verse five. But it says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's for everyone. We've all sinned, but it's the iniquity of everyone. You know, we've gone astray and if you read in the scriptures, there's the story of the prodigal son and the prodigal son takes everything all his money from the father and goes off and with wild lifestyle loses it all. But it says he comes to that moment where he thinks, he says he comes to himself. And we have to have that moment where we come to ourselves and we go, you know what, what I've got is not right. The way I'm living is not how it should be. That, that God's got something better for me. And it's in that moment that we turn and we say, yeah, God, I'm going to come back to you or I'm going to come to you, maybe it's for the first time. It says, we are like sheep who have gone astray. So the danger is, it says that he's died for everyone, he's atoned for the sin of everyone, 
but we can't then be a sheep that stays astray from him. We can't be distant from him. We've got to come back to him and receive that which he's given to us. Let's go on verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We're reminded that Jesus chose this path. They did not kill Jesus. Did you know that? No one killed Jesus. He gave up his life. Because if you think, that changes how you think about life. Because if you think, well, they can kill Jesus, then what can they do to me? They couldn't kill Jesus. They tried at some point. They took him, they, they took him to the edge of a cliff and they wanted to push him off. And he was like, no. And just walked away, you know? That's how I view it in my mind. He just gave, gave a bit of sass and just walked through because he was like, this is not my time. You cannot control my life. You do not choose when I die. I choose when I die. And this is the thing that we have this mindset that they were taking Jesus to the cross. And they said, Jesus, we really shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Trouble ahead. He's like, no, this is my path. This is where I'm going. Willingly choosing to die for us. Because he knew he had to. Verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Because the path of Jesus wasn't an easy path. Oppression, judgment, it's not easy. Obedience to God is not easy. Because it says there's a wide path and there's a narrow path. The wide path is easy. It means to do what you want. But the narrow path is the path that leads to life. It says, few walk it. But it's interesting, that verse, I don't know if you noticed the thing at that verse, a bit of your English grammar, what's at the very end? A question mark. It's a question. Because often I, when I was reading it, I wasn't reading it as a question. I was reading it as a statement. And it says, who? Who, where is it? Who considered that he was cut off? How do we consider the life of Jesus? How do you look at the life of Jesus? Because if you look at it as a tragic story, you're full of pity. But the truth is, we don't need to pity Jesus. Poor Jesus, didn't he suffer? It was a wonderful Jesus. Isn't it brilliant that he chose the path that he took that we might have life? Because the trouble is, if all you see is the death of Jesus... It is a sad story. But it's saying, don't you realize that the story isn't finished there? Because you're going to go through, through things and there'll be times you're like, this is terrible. But do you realize that the story isn't finished there? That there's more? And God's going to do greater things? It says, verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, it was in death and resurrection that Christ received his reward. Verse 2 said that the, the Father was always, the eye of the Father was always on him. Even through it all, the eye of the Father was on him. It was never deviating from the path, from the plan. His goal and his reward were the offspring, the children. You are his reward. This is why he did it, for you. He wanted you, each one of you. He wants you. That's why he did it. That's why he went to the cross to die, because he wants you. 
Jesus hadn't done it, we wouldn't be able to be born again. It says in the book of John, it says we're, not, we're born not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but the will of the Father. You know, this new life you have was his purpose and his will all the time. And Jesus knew that, and that's why he went through this for you. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You know, Jesus lived this perfect life, perfect righteous life. He chose obedience. He chose not to fall away. He chose to follow the will of the Father so that you and I today can be called righteous. As I said earlier, that we, we are saints. Saints means you are a holy one of God. And I don't know if you see that. You might look at me and say, you don't know me, Daniel. I'm not a holy one. I'm not a saint. But his righteousness makes you righteous. We are holy because of what he did. And that is your identity. And I want to encourage you to live in that identity. His identity determines ours. Do you see yourself as you were, or do you see yourself as he is? There's a challenge for us. Do you see yourself as he is? You can see him as he is. This is what I'm saying, that we need to, first of all, we see him, and that determines who we are. And we don't say, well, aren't I brilliant? We say, wow, the grace of God has been given to me that I can be called a child of God. Not because of anything I've done, not because of anything I've achieved, not because of my great works or my terrible works, not because of all these things, but because of what he did. I can be called a righteous one and I can know him. But you've got to see him to be able to see who you truly are. I believe the plea of Christ this morning is, I died for you, will you come to me? Because he can do all this, and it, if we don't get it, if we don't see it, then it's of no account for us. It doesn't, there's no benefit to us. It says in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, it wasn't the end. Death wasn't the end. We're not identifying this morning with a defeated Jesus. We're identifying this morning with a victorious Christ who is given the name above every other name, who is seated on the throne of heaven with everything under his feet. And that's who we identify with this morning. This is the Jesus we worship this morning, not a defeated Christ hanging on a cross as a resurrected and glorified Lord. And he's saying, will you come into this kingdom because I've got a new way for you, my way. That it doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter the upbringing and what they thought about you, what they thought about your parents, the job you had. He was a blue-collar worker, really tough hands. He wasn't, didn't have the education that other people might have had. It didn't matter a jot because he was doing the will of his father. 
He has been exalted and now makes intercession for you. He's praying for you right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? If God is for you, if Jesus is praying for you, happy days, you know? It's good times, isn't it? God is for me. Who can be against me? But if you don't see Jesus as the resurrected Lord who is there, if you see him as something completely different, then that, that Jesus for you, you know, Jesus in the grave, Jesus who's nothing, there was something in, in, in our worship this morning that was just like, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the bookends of everything. There's nothing outside. There's no blind spot. He's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. He sees everything. He knows everything. He can do everything. And he's praying for you right now. And the question is, will we come and will we humble ourselves before him? Because he won't force himself upon you this morning. He won't say, you have to do this. He's saying, will you come? So let's respond to him. If the worship team want to come. And you can put up my last slide, Dave. Will you come? And this is the invitation of Jesus to you right now. Will you come? And maybe you've had a revelation of Jesus in the past. You've known him, but that's got a bit stale. Will you come and will you just look at him? I was encouraged by T.D. Jakes the other week. Not personally. He didn't... Something he said. He said, stare at the page. Because we can read our Bibles, but stare. Just stare and go deeper and go deeper. Just let it soak. Soak yourself in the word of God. Soak yourself in who he is. Find a passage about your Lord and just soak yourself in it. Don't have to rush through it. Just spend time just looking and saying, God, who are you? What are you saying? Just soak in it. But maybe you've never known him. Maybe you've never responded to him before and he's saying will you come this morning or will you just come to me will you cast your burdens upon me will you cast your sin I want to take it and will you make me the Lord of your life should we stand well, Lord we come to you now maybe from very different places we come and we confess Lord that we have gone astray Maybe through sin, maybe through busyness, maybe through ignorance. We didn't know that you were calling us. Lord, I never knew you were calling me until I heard someone preach this good news. And then I came. Lord, may we come to you this morning. Lord, with whatever need, whatever situation we have, will we come to you this morning and just cast these things to you and receive you into our lives, into our hearts.